Hello and welcome to what can only be described as the Christmas edition of the Statsman podcast with me, James York, and... Ted Knutson. And Hanukkah just started yesterday, so maybe it's a, a bit of Hanukkah, maybe some, I don't know, any sort of random holiday that happens in December and January. Sure, we'll just toss it all in, because we're giving you an extra edition. Yeah. Usually we're slightly lazy or very busy, and we do this monthly, but you get two in December. Yeah, see, isn't that kind of us? What a... What a benevolent dictator we well, are. Well, see, we're just responding because like, some people said such nice things about our last podcast and how excited they were simply to receive it that you know we decided that an extra gift was in order. Yeah. Why not, eh? Why not? And this time, because uh, well, it was only a couple of weeks ago we hit on everything, um, and we just pretty much ran through the Premier League and such and such, it's still going to be Premier League chat. You know the way, the way it rolls around here. But we did actually... Um, ask for questions, or you did, and we got quite a lot. The usual array of um, decent questions and six months research projects, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna go with the questions rather than the research projects. But that's fine. So we might as well crack on. Uh, top of the list was has Liverpool's defence improved, which is an interesting question because I think most a lot of the focus this season has been on. Well, on the attack in the ridiculous Mohamed Salah season. But I don't know. Have you got any thoughts on Liverpool's defence, Ted? I think it's changed, and, and I find that weird. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unusual <laughs> that, that teams will sort of structurally change their defence and, and how they operate tactically, um, especially somebody who has traditionally been quite married to, to pressing, like Klopp has. Mm. And uh, and the, the PPDA, so passes per defensive action, which is one measure anyway of kind of pressing intensity has really dropped like, versus any other Klopp season and actually I think even versus like some Liverpool seasons um, and that's quite intriguing uh, but the fact of the matter is has it moved the needle at all? Well, it doesn't seem to have particularly like, I had a quick look at some numbers before here shots were down uh, the expected goals per shot was up a bit which you know that's the, the age old problem uh, and the XG against was basically uh, similar to his first season, slightly up on last season, but we're all talking in the same ballpark. You know, the, the ingredients are, you know, he's making a Christmas cake and it tastes the same whatever he puts into it. It feels like, but I, yeah, I think one thing that that you do see is that um, you know a lot of the really great shots, uh, at least four or five of them, have been off of set pieces. They haven't given up a set piece goal in in a while. I don't think anyway, at least not the one that I've noticed. There was a bunch early <laughs> in the season. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it does create attention as soon as they can see the corner. Like, well, last <laughs> year they gave up. Last year they gave up 12, 12 goals on on set pieces. Um, XG was like thirteen. This year they're on five um, and right around XG. And you know that that has been a, a crucial problem. Like two years ago, it was fifteen, which is a major, major problem. Um, yeah, if you're giving up fifteen goals just for set pieces, like that's going to be an issue for a Liverpool. Three years ago, it was fourteen. So it's it's a long term issue if they manage to solve that to some extent then you know maybe we'll see it but i don't think that i'm in the same boat as you like i don't think their defense has really improved i think it's adjusted a bit but you know it might be that they don't give up as many amazing non-set piece chances um from open play because they're not pressing as aggressively and so the the xg model often will have a problem with like a a great pressing um, shot just because like they're not going to realize that there's no real defensive pressure or anything like that. But um, yeah, in general, I think the the defense is not so 
impressive, but man, are they fun to watch an attack, which is something we said you know, from the summertime as well, just looking at those guys, you'd be like, yep, this is going to be enjoyable. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we can briefly hit on something related to Liverpool and rotation, because the, 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 uh, the Derby game, which they dominated entirely and should have won, and you know, play that game a few times, they win it most times. Of course, the results had everyone up, up in arms, which is what happens, even though Everton had three shots all game, and you know, one of which was a penalty that <laughs> yeah. was slightly dubious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an earned penalty. I think is the best way of describing it. But um, yeah, you don't need to worry about these things. Uh, people get locked into the passion of the derby, and that's understandable. But you know, if you can, if you're not a Liverpool or Everton fan, you can step away from it and say, like, yeah, he's doing okay. Interesting. Klopp seems to be rotating like crazy now. It's almost as if someone's sat him down and said, "Look, mate." <laughs> he fell apart in the middle of last season because he didn't rotate, and he's been like, "No, that's fine. Okay, I get it. I'll I'll rotate more than ever." So that's a, that is a change. Um, at least in the, they they have got the players to rotate a little bit more now. Um, I think I was worried about their depth, like uh, before the season, and they did you know make a handful of signings. But it's, so far, I mean, we're just on the cusp of things. So far, it's looking okay. Anyway, I, I think we hit on Liverpool quite a lot last time, so we don't need to. Labour the point there. Sorry, what's, Liverpool fans. <laughs> what's what's our next question anyway? Okay. We would love to hear about which players are performing well for bottom half teams in the Premier League. Um, <laughs> James has decided to to be pretty straightforward with this and look at um, the attackers. So we're not gonna not gonna tuck into to all the various ones. This is like a legitimate research project. It would be one of those things where you canvas the entire Premier League. And you're like, oh, these guys look really good in the not so good teams. Well, yeah, in a, short, in a short period of time, just to like, right, let's let's have a quick look at, you know, who's who's contributing to expected goals uh, at a high rate. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> this one's, this first it, one's fun. I, I really enjoyed this one. <laughs> it did come out with a good list because uh, at top of the list was Ben Teke, who <laughs> has no goals. Just doesn't do anything. Yeah, he, I think he's he's kind of like in line with his usual kind of expectation. He just can't score a goal for love nor money. Um, so there's there's this secret thing that like not very many people talk about, but we flagged it up very early on in our research, which is that certain styles of play are hugely variant versus other styles that are not. And controlling for variance may be a choice that you make or maybe not. If your style of play is really predicated on good quality headers, and especially if teams know that, like, that is a very high variance strategy to choose. Not least because it depends partly on the crosses and the service from crosses. And it depends on being able to get headers and get the ball on target off of crosses, which is also quite difficult as well. And so it's not just Benteke. Like it was one of the one of the reasons why we stumbled on it was we wanted to look at that funky ass Liverpool season. Um, where Douglas came in before like Suarez looked like he he couldn't finish, like just couldn't finish. Um, and we're like, this is so weird. So we looked at it, and, and this this is one of the explanations that we came up with. And you can choose to embrace the style of play, but you also are in choosing to embrace some really big outliers as part of your distribution of potential results. Yeah, that's interesting. <coughs> I've not known about that, in, you know, specifically. Sorry, I've mean, given away another secret. Tell Don't tell anyone. <laughs> but yeah, no, it does make some kind of sense, and it does does explain how you get some of these, uh, yeah, some of these really hot and cold strike strikers in some ways. Um, who do we have next on, on the list? Tam Tam. you like? Yeah, your Tammy boy Abraham, Tammy. For a team that doesn't attack. Yeah, he's, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. These people, are, these these players are all getting like, I'd say, okay to, 
okay to slightly good numbers um and everything is you know with perspective uh tammy's in his first tammy abrams in his first season in the premier league on a team that just doesn't attack at all and he's yeah he's shaping up all right i remember this summer people were asking me what i would pay for tammy um just just to outright buy him especially on the arsenal side it's like man i'm not unwilling to to pay like 30 million for him especially given i look it is a risk like you're you're taking on one very young player who had an amazing season in the championship but it's a risk that's that's backed up by a lot of strong data that said that the profile of this player is hugely unusual. The physical profile of this player is hugely unusual. He does all sorts of filthy things if you watch his highlight reel, uh, as you should, because he's wonderful. Um, but uh, I remember talking to, to Jake Cohen. and uh, he was We were briefly discussing Alexis Sanchez and how he'd be interesting for Chelsea, potentially. And I was like, I would swap you straight up, Alexis, for Bertrand Traore and Tammy. And he's like, Man, we should get Imanalo on the phone because I'd take that deal. I was like, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> I, I would do that in a heartbeat. I'm not sure the Triori one has panned out quite as well, even though Leonor looked really good. But I, I have some belief that he's quite good. But I really believe strongly that Tammy's great. <clears throat> yeah, and um, you can't imagine you'll be at Swansea next year because it's going to be a coin flip there, even in the league. But yeah, interesting where he does go because that's the next, you know the next step after you're kind of alone in the Premier League is can you actually like find a spot at your parent club mm, could be tricky I don't know you know you could end up in the Michi Bashuai school of not playing or yeah like you say someone's going to have someone would have to pay quite a reasonable fee for him I think to now especially after he's shown that he has you know uh, ability to perform in this league um, another player you know, you, you know uh, a little is next on the list, Andre Gray, who I, I thought was an odd signing for Watford. I, I, I did never really seen much about him, but um, you know, I, I guess oh, that's a point. Watford, what are they doing in this bottom half of the Premier League section? We can skip past him if you like. Uh, <laughs> Let, let's skip that. Uh, <laughs> they are interesting to watch, but they're approximately where we would expect them to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. They, one thing that I found weird is that like I think Watford games are like a lot more open than I expect, um, mm. having watched them. And and part of it is is uh, Silva like choosing to to test teams with um, what's his name Zaga whatever Zileo the the left back the or <laughs> pseudo left back anyway yeah. really an attacker. But it allows them to to put Richarlison more one v one versus centre back, which has been really difficult for for teams to cope with. Uh, but it, it creates fun matches to watch, oddly enough, and I think the Watford people are delighted by this. Uh, also delighted by having solid results early in the season. Hopefully, they don't plummet down the table like they did last year at the end. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting. That's that's the that's the challenge for Silver to actually kind of you know back up the early season form. Uh, Shakiri is next on the list. Jordan. Yeah, I. I well, I'm not sure what to make about that. I, I guess he's he's probably must be in his prime by now, and should should be higher up on the list. Again, I have to emphasise that, like you know, n- none of these players are kind of like setting the world on fire by their uh, expected numbers. But you know, we're looking at the bottom half of the table. We've eliminated all the all the top half, and that's where you find all the fire. Stoker uh, really weird, and we we got asked explicitly about this. I'm not sure if there it's on the list or not, but yeah, yeah, no, it is. 
We so maybe, maybe we should just segue because the last person on the list mm. you one of us want to talk about at the moment is Jermaine Defoe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there, there are other interesting names, but like really, you know, you pretty much know these people, and and we'll see yeah. what happens through the rest of the season. But even like you know, an eight to ten game sample that some of these players have isn't that huge. Uh, it gives you an idea of what they are, but it doesn't give you a stable long term rate. Mm. Um, so Stoke, what are we thinking here? What's what's going on with the with the the Potters? Well, I had a little look at this uh, early in the week for a little article I wrote, and it's, um, it's the top line is they've just conceded a ton of goals. Um, quite, the question is why? Um, he chooses to switch to a back three, because, I don't know, everyone has, or something. Um, that could be part of it. Central midfield's an interesting thing. They've got Darren Fletcher in there. I think he's played nearly every game. He's 33. You know, when you're thinking about is your defence becoming poorer, centre back and centre midfield are two positions that you, or you know, and your goalkeeper, of course, are positions that you might want to look at and think like, hmm, is this is this a problem? Uh, but yeah, it's very different to all his other seasons. Um, they're they're just down on on everything. And last season was worse than his previous seasons. So you just kind of wonder, like, how much can is Hughes got anything left to eke out of his team? Like, their squad is looks it, okay. Is it unraveling? The squad does look okay. It looks okay. You think there's a lot of these kind of chancy, uh, didn't quite make it somewhere else type players that, but you know, you kind of like you think are good on reputation, and that, that seems to have been the Stoke formula recently, and it's worked out. I mean, they they finished ninth three seasons in a row, finished thirteenth last season. You know, it's, it's, this is fine if you if you're just happy to plod along in the middle of the Premier League table, then you haven't got a problem. But yeah, worst defence in the league, uh, a little bit over expectation. So you know that that should come back a little bit. But it's it's that's you know a bit of a bit of an alarm bell. Right? Thirty six goals conceded is a lot. Now they do have mm. a fairly soft schedule into in through the yeah. last of the this half of the year. But yeah, it's it's the it's about the defence. One way or another, it's about the defence. And can that be righted? I mean. Right now, they're three points off the, the bottom, um, but the three points off the bottom means they're 15th, uh, minus 17 goal difference, which is, again, like tied for second worst in the league. Uh, Crystal Palace, my, mind you, we, they have played an extra game, but they're out of the bottom three. Are they? <laughs> yes. The table they're in 17th. They're yeah, one yeah. point above both West Ham and West Brom. Oh, uh, yeah. Alan Pardew. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. West, West. Oh, I don't know. West, West Brom with Pardew. I think their first. Was it their first game? One of their games, they rolled up. Where did they roll up? They rolled up at. That was it. Swansea took seven shots, allowed eighteen, and lost one nil. It's like the the hyper attacking <laughs> Swansea Swans. <laughs> it's like yeah, that ain't no Poolis type of. Well, that, is probably, that is probably a poolish shape of a game, except that his team would win 1 0 off seven shots and allowing 18. But yeah, I mm, yeah, don't know. Speaking of Could teams time. that win 1 0, allowing seven shots off of 18. I don't want to talk about Burnley. Dude. So much noise. Now, so I, I don't want to talk about Burnley directly because we did this a bit. <laughs> I, I gave James a really hard time. Um, but there's so much noise about Dice right now. And, yeah. and so my question for you is. Given where Burnley are, but also yeah. given the history of Burnley, yeah. uh, and Sean Dyche himself, should we be saying that his ceiling is Allardyce, or is he Dutch tactical mastermind Jan Dykes? And <laughs> which way should we which should we steer on this? Should particularly since Everton, who everyone thinks of as a bigger club, uh, who are by the way in tenth all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, it's all fine again. 
<laughs> um, since, since Everton have basically hired what might be Allardyce's ceiling, um, you know, where does Sean Dyche fit? Because Burnley give all credit to their recruitment. They've done a really good job at finding kind of undervalued British players over the years. Dyche has done a good job of coaching them up. On the other hand, they have 16 goals scored in 17 games, and they're in fourth place. So there are some conflicting factors here. But beyond all that, where is Dyche's ceiling for a manager? What should be his next step? I found this a really interesting question. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, I mean, I, I don't know, I've heard Alain Dyche before, but that's, that's, um, that's absolutely on the money, I think, because that's, that's what he's doing. So, you know, making small gains, hoping to ride some variance as well, and doing so, and, yeah, having an absolute whale of a time. But yeah, it's an interesting question, like, why Everton wouldn't, like, try and seduce him if they were gonna go, then go and seduce Allardyce. I mean, we don't know what happened in the background. Yeah, where does he go next? Because you can't, you can't imagine. He'll, he'll, he'll probably suffer in the same way that Pulis and Allardyce have suffered in the past, is that, uh, by just creating stability in a Premier League, uh, a lower grade kind of Premier League team, does not attract, uh, the big clubs anymore. It, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, who's, who's progressed out of, like, kind of, even like the, below the top seven, I guess, you know, Pochettino and Cumin both kind of like rose up a little, um, from, you know, managing Southampton. But yeah, it's just not a route. So yeah, where does he go? I mean, he, he probably wants to test himself at some point, but whilst the going's good at Burnley, he might stay put. But you could compare that to Eddie Howe, actually, because I think Dyche has got more going on in, re- in regards to like, um, tactical uh, nuance or ability than Eddie Howe perhaps but there was a point when he was definitely um, you know the the great hope of uh, home based managers and then Bournemouth's results kind of haven't been so good and you know arguably he he's kind of ridden past his hot spell and that could happen to Dice as well you know we come back this time next year and Burnley are probably going to be like 15th or 16th. I, again, to be fair to to the people that are doubters, you know, Burnley finished in what 17th last year, right? They mm, yeah. they were pretty good for a while. They're in the top half and then fell off at the end of the year for whatever reason. Um, <clears throat> so I find that I find part of this quite interesting because like there's always this question of can this manager you know adapt to a, a more attacking side? Can they adapt to better talent? And to be kind of fair to to the, the doubters on this one. Like, Burnley have had the opportunity to have quite good attacking talent, uh, especially for the championship. And, and Dyche still played it very tight back then, and they were inverted on their shots numbers, so they gave up more shots than they, they took in the championship. Um, and they had, you know, when they came down, they had a very good, uh, or, sorry, they had a very good squad while, while there, um, and pretty, they were run very frugally, but they also had the benefit of being able to buy the best players from the middle and lower two sides in the championship. So there's this question of always, well, he's been constrained by his talent. And I can tell you for a fact that it's hugely frustrating for me to hear this anymore because we did a, a big study on this. And managers very rarely change tactical setups and structures uh, when they, even when they move across talent groups. Um, some of them do, uh, some of them based on their learning of being in, um, you know, like the, the Coverciano school in, in Italy or whatever, they're forced to learn 
to to have some different tactical setups and and part of that is is just instruction right but many of them are married to this is what i know this is what i know works and this is what i know how to coach from a session format and a drill format which is actually you know that's a big deal it's like coaching is again an apprenticeship type thing where you learn from doing and you have to be able to see the problems that exist and then talk to the players and and create you know drills on how to how to how to fix the problem essentially uh so how do you impart the knowledge so I do respect that people can change, and you know, someone like Thomas Tuchel changed a lot. Yes, Thorup actually up at Michelin changed completely from when he came out of the Danish U21s into Michelin over the course of three years, and that he's now got a very attacking side. But that's not what he started with. Um, so it does happen, but there's always the benefit of the doubt that people want to give him, like, oh yeah, well, he, he, it's just constrained by his talent. That almost is never true. It might be true once in a while. The question is, where is he going to learn how to coach this other style that's more free-flowing? And I'm always skeptical until it happens, and I think that's just based off of data analysis. Yeah, I kind of see how... Hey, hey, here's a question. Has Pep changed? <laughs> mm, more sh- no? <laughs> more uh, aggression? I don't know. No, probably not. I, I don't think at all. Um I think that he's got the players to play his style now, and he's got the pace that allows him to do that, and they're having success because of it. That's there may be a little a little nudge towards subtle violence, uh, <laughs> as you need in the Premier League. <laughs> I don't think that's true, though. Like his maybe not yeah. his Barcelona teams were master shithousers. Uh, I say this <laughs> as someone who watched a lot of Barcelona in knockout matches, as everyone did. And if you're paying attention at all, you see the tactical fouls and the bullshit and. You'll see it now. Uh, but he also showed up to you know, a team that had some fairly mature players that you know know how the Premier League operates, and, and they've helped guide that a bit too. But they never ever believe... Like, tactical fouling is always going to be part of the game. It's a very smart part of the game. It's a way to break up counterattacks for free to some extent, especially if your forwards are doing it more often because they're less likely to get carded. Uh, so it's it's something that we strongly encourage from a tactical perspective, especially if you're you're high pressing. Like, what's the risk? You get a foul up there, you break up a counterattack, sure. You don't get a card, sure. If you get the recovery and it's not just a foul, suddenly you're in on goal. Like this is this is a huge edge that teams very rarely exploit. Pep's teams are good at it usually because they're in position to do it anyway. This is true. All right, yeah, we can move on to, uh, I think, our next question uh, after we got past all those players. It was uh, the chances of City finishing with the most goals and points in the Premier League year. Now, I had a quick look at this because um, we, we need an answer. <laughs> uh, most points was Chelsea in 90, uh, sorry, 04, 05, 95 points. Uh, that means they need 50 points from 22 games, which, if you want to put it into old money, 15 wins, 5 draws and 2 defeats. That feels, I think that you know, that feels like realistic that they get close to that line. I don't know. I mean, whether they exceed it, you know, they they ain't gonna win every game. I just can't. I can't. It's not gonna happen. They, you know, they will slip up somewhere along the way with schedule or injuries or just is it just a coin flip? Damn luck. Is it, it a coin felt, flip? Feels it felt like, like it. it might be. Yeah. When I when I kind of had to think about it. And, even and the goals. league's better. Like let's 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 be totally honest. The league is better than it has ever been right now. Yeah, even though they've had this hell of a run, you know, and Chelsea had a hell of a run last autumn, you know, when they won thirteen games in a row. But this is the thing, you know, did you know? Eventually, eventually, there'll be one-one going into extra time, and Raheem Sterling won't score, you know, and that that'll happen once or twice, and you know, or, you know, some <laughs> some own goals will be going off Otamendi's 
butt or whatever it is, and that'll be, you know, just one <laughs> of those days. It's, it's law, the laws of the world dictate this. Um, and goals as well. Goals, they need 56 more in 22 games, which is two and a half a game. They're currently running at three a game. Um, still not easy again, I think. No, you know, no. I, it also makes you respect like how good that those Chelsea teams were how dominant they were yeah that was that was 9-10 Chelsea but uh, yeah and again you, you realise that you know you, you have got to keep at it they've probably got a, uh, my complete you know <laughs> back of a fag packet estimation yeah I think coin flips for, for the pair on, on those ones so they could and I think and the they, danger is that they end up being in every competition and they mm. have to rotate fairly heavily at some point and also winning the league way out if they're still in the Champions League and they've won the league in Mid, you know, start of April. Yeah. And they're not, they're, you know, rotating and whatever it is. Well, we, we've seen we've seen Pep shut down at Bayern when they won mm. it super early, um, and, and it allows them. It makes them more likely to do well than champion or Champions League and potentially FA Cup and and bring home historic trebles, etc. Mm. Um, but yeah, so if they want it, like I think that it's it's there and they're probably better than fifty percent to get it. The question is whether they'll they'll sacrifice that type of stuff to to just you know have what would be an equally interesting potentially uh, you know three trophies or whatever um, Manchester United aren't really that great James that's that's what they're saying I'm pretty sure you wrote a whole article about this and you received <laughs> wonderful feedback from all yeah. of your fans yeah it was, it was before the City City game and um, yeah I, I don't know it's a pretty straightforward analytics take um, that you know they're, they're absolutely right, riding high in a variety of kind of expected numbers and whereas I think probably Man United fans were looking before the City game looking at it's like look if we can win this game we cut it to 8 points we're not that trailed off we're the second best team in the in the land whereas if you actually look at their numbers no, nah, I don't think Man United is the second best team in the land and I've said this for a while and they went on a little run I mean they've had, their results have been very good but I think they're very much in the pack the chasing pack that aren't going to catch Man City and never were but I think they're very much uh Possibly one of the weaker teams of that that group of five, which is contentious. But you know, we we shall see. Their, their home record has been outstanding for a long time. You know, they've only lost to City twice in the last two seasons. And um, so we we have a transfer question in here that we're going to skip, but I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you why we'll skip it. So who should Arsenal sign to replace Ozil and Sanchez? Now this is an interesting question. Um, yeah, you mentioned Julian Draxler, which is possibly interesting, but I don't think Drax is going to leave, and I'm not sure that they would want him to. Like, I, I think that he sees it out. You know, PSG are among the, the favorites for the Champions League. I think that he sticks around. He provides them needed depth anyway. Uh, and it, it gives Neymar a break when, when he wants it. Um, but this is the type of thing that we usually answer in January on transfer podcasts or later in the year. Um, not Thomas Lamar, I think, is my current answer, especially not for $90 million. <laughs> somebody, somebody else won. That was like such a, a huge mistake waiting to happen, and and <laughs> Arsenal ducked it by not spending, what, what was it, something between 70 and $90 million or what the, the rumors were. But then they also kept Sanchez around, so they kind of burnt that money anyway. It's weird. Uh, moving on. Uh, two Brentford questions. Emiliano... Emiliano Marcondes, how hot is he right now? Very, very. And I'm not sure that his set-piece goal scoring is sustainable, but he's had a hell of a run of goals there. But he looks really good. He's come on quite well this year at Norseland, who are very good at um, developing young talent. We know Joe Mulberry from there. Uh, also, Fleming Patterson, 
another person who used to be at Brentford is uh, their technical director. So right. pretty interesting. And um, are Brentford really that bad at the back? So you had some thoughts on, on at least some part of these, which is unusual for James in the championship. So I'm going to let him state his own thoughts, and then I'll, I'll try. <laughs> the, the, the data-related thoughts. Like I, had a, I had a look at this because I was like, are Brentford bad at the back? I don't know. Well, they're... And I'd look at their their open play expected goals conceded is decent, which is sixth in the championship, so 0.78 per game. But their set piece, of all things, their set piece expected goals conceded is terrible. It's like 0.4 per game, 23rd in the league. So it's like, well, eh, why that shouldn't be going like that? But the open play side of things, that feels like a positive. I feel like I'd be okay about that. Because you can surely do something about set pieces, can't you, Ted? Uh, yes. If you have <laughs> the right coaches, you could potentially lock down some set pieces. I think this has been uh, a small underlying issue for Brentford for a while. Uh, last year, they had some some games where they got punished set piece-wise. This year, they have, again, for various reasons, um, you know, they're not super tall, and that's that will have some impact, but I think there's as much structure and systemic issue as, as anything else. Um, the the defensive bit, I don't think they're that bad at the back. I think they have issues in the middle, particularly with the midfield and how they defend out of possession. Uh, they're a much better pressing team this year than they have been in the past, um, especially when when teams kind of need to come at them. But the, the problem, or, or sorry, at, basically at game states. So at game state zero, I think Brentford are, are quite interesting because like they're able to press and, and get forward. Once they go one nil up, they'll often shell to some extent, um, and I think that that's where they've had some real issues. And one reason why they end up with a funky amount of draws, they're giving up too many goals and they catch up. They have a very good attack, um, but I think that this is kind of a longer term thing where they don't destroy enough stuff in the middle, um, like so, like the top championship clubs often do, and that means that too many balls are are coming in difficult um, to handle with the, the personnel at the back. And, and that's something that's probably systemic and maybe a little personnel, but I'm not sure anymore. So that's my take. That's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't, I don't follow Brentford very very closely. But, yeah, it was interesting that the, the set-piece stuff was there. Where do we go from here? Uh, what's next? We should one? talk about Petr Cech. Yeah, someone said, isn't All Black the perfect Cech replacement for Arsenal? Maybe he is. Um, uh, I don't know. I think it comes. Around, it feels like it comes around every year now. Like because he is thirty-five, and I guess he's a bit of an old-style keeper in a way, as well as being old. But it feels like you could maybe get an upgrade in there. I think. I think Old Black's actually one of the top five keepers in the world. So. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that he'd be a massive upgrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure whether that's a realistic signing or not, but yeah, he definitely would be. But I think, yeah, the re- replacing check is. Um, it, it feels like it could be on the table. I don't know. I don't. I think we've moved into an era where it's not so cool to have uh, your 40-year-old keeper. I mean, I don't know. Buffon's the exception that proves, proves the rule, I suppose. There, but you know, just your keepers need to do more. You know, you're not. There's no one's at their peak at 40. It's just or 35. It's just, <laughs> it's just not, not where things are at. I kind of still exist in the the school that keepers are good until they're not, but you don't know when that's going to happen. Um, yeah. Czech, Czech has had enough mistakes in the last couple of years, like just giving away possession badly. Like there was a Fabregas goal 
um, was it last year or this year, where the, it was just off of a, a check giveaway straight to him and he comes right back and, and scores. I think that there are some concerns there that say that you know maybe his concentration might be flagging a bit. Um, there are plenty of people in, in Arsenal uh, fan groups wanted to, to bring um, Chesney back, uh, but that did not happen. I think that that might not have happened because the bridges were burnt on one side or the other there. Uh, I did hear a good story from, from somebody who, who used to be at Arsenal recently. Talking, we were talking about um, expected goals and finishing ability, and, uh, and Podolski came up. And, and the, if you know anything about Lucas Podolski, you know, the one, he didn't run all that much when he was at Arsenal. He kind of, like, exists, even in, in the Bundesliga, he exists to, to score goals. And he's a bit of Defoe-like in some cases, but probably a better full skill set. But the other thing is, like, he had God's hammer of a left foot. Like, I've never seen anybody hit a ball truer, more consistently than Podolski. And uh, this person was telling me very early on at Arsenal, uh, when, when Boldy first showed up, Chesney was in goal, and nearly got his head taken off by a, by a Podolski shot. <laughs> and nearly, once you see it in person, it's like even more impressive than, than you see it on video. Like, and, and it comes back around to, you know, there's always plenty of talk about finishing ability. Um, <clears throat> in baseball, they have tons of things that measure like how hard a ball was hit and the exit velocity and the... Um, the, the the angle of of, uh, of attack is whatever um, we don't have that in football yet, but it will be another thing that kind of moves the needle in terms of expected goals type stuff because you'll you'll know how hard a ball would was hit, and once you know that, then you kind of are able to compress the time for the keeper to be able to save it. And if it's you know if it's on target, it's some of these cases, Foldy hit the ball so hard that you couldn't possibly react unless you were in the way already. <laughs> and, then, and that's the type of thing we're like, yeah, okay. We wonder how many concussions people end up with from from balls that are just hammered at goalkeepers in training. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, God, was Edison saved one with his head, didn't he, at the weekend? That yes. Kept the win and <laughs> then saved again and then went down, which is probably a good idea. Another Arsenal-related question that I actually thought was really interesting. Um, mm. What do the first six months of Sanlehi and Mislintat look like? So these are the new guys that Arsenal have hired behind the scenes. One of them is uh, sort of a deal maker. Like they've lost, Dick Law's retired and, you know, we, we don't know if he's going to be director of football long term or not, but, you know, you can't have a director of football while Wenger's there. He's clearly said that, but they also have to plan for the future. So you've got Sanlehi doing that and then you've got Mislintat who's head of recruitment and came from Dortmund who have been quite good at finding young players that, that are outstanding. So what do the first six months of those guys look like? <laughs> uh, begging Mesut Ozil to stay, probably. <laughs> I, I think I think Ozil can stay forever. I just you know I'm not sure that anybody wants to pay him 300k a week anywhere. But the flip side for him is that if he leaves, he's going to get a signing bonus from somebody, and that's totally normal. So if Arsenal aren't willing to to stump up enough money for that to happen, then why would he stay? It's, it, you're trying to find some, some middle ground. Also, you know, maybe he wants to go somewhere and win some more titles, so he goes and hangs out at Bayern or here or there. Yeah, that's the thing. He could, couldn't he? he could turn up any of the mega clubs and just, be, you know, be, you know, yeah, like Ribery retires so they get Ozil in just to be the kind of, you know, magician. For yeah, exactly. The, the guy that unlocks defences on a regular basis and, you know, suddenly Ozil only plays like 24 games a year as opposed to, mm. to, to 30, but he also plays in the Champions League, and he, you, you're able to manage his minutes forever because he's just got that skill set that's unreal. Um, the thing that I think, you know, from a, a background process idea, 
like one of the first things that I would do would be just go in and and learn how things currently operate. And they, it's horribly complicated to walk into a football club at any point because there's all sorts of political stuff going on that you don't know anything about. And some environments are really good and really positive and you're able to talk through things. And some environments, everybody's got their personal fiefdom and nobody talks between them and they only, they only, <laughs> they only work together because they're forced to. Um, so you have to go in and you have to find out what that looks like, especially for both of these guys because they, they bridge multiple departments, presumably. Um, and then once you understand the process, then you start to say, okay, well, I would like to you know, adjust these things to, to work in this way and how do we improve this or do we need somebody who, who could potentially be better here? You're reviewing a lot of work from the people who you know, are basically reporting to you, like what are the scouts, who are they, are they good, are they not? And and then you start making adjustments. But those first few months, anyway, are just learning the lay of the land, learning what's needed, uh, figuring out how to talk to people, what people's personalities are like. It's actually fairly massive and, and complicated to, to walk into a big club. Um, and, and Arsenal, perhaps more so than most, because of the fact that Wenger's there, and it's very, very complicated at the moment. Yeah, I mean, as a as a Tottenham fan, I mean, I've not always been a biggest fan of their uh, recruitment, or um, you know, in the, in, even in recent years. But the the idea that you've got Levy and Pochettino, like them, they seem to be mates. They actually, you know, em- employee and employer, and they seem to be pretty. They get on well, and there, there is the communication is quite clear between them. Yeah, you'd like a, a an an, an analytically smart like recruitment department to be in there too, but you know, there's a very there's a clarity about like what they actually are intending to do, and that's the thing I wonder about Arsenal is if you've got like, you know, too many people come from disparate places uh, to maybe join up and get a kind of coherent single vision that is going to align with Wenger or whomever replaces him whenever. Well, that one happens. thing that that doesn't kind of get enough press. Like you, everybody's always encouraging the move, and in fact, the financial structure also encourages moves. It's like you're in your own job, right? You get paid this, but you know you've got a good raise on the table, and it's interesting. And, and maybe I'll go do that. Um, language is is a problem. Like communicating is a problem. But the fact of the matter is, like football is just a a destructive place in many cases. You move, and you don't know what you're getting into, and you've got a shelf life of, of like two years at any particular job, and, and, and men, the median might even be less than that. So, yeah, I mean, respect to these guys for, for taking on a new chance, and they're going to get paid pretty well for it, but you know, if you're not just doing it for the pay, if you're doing it for like the lifestyle, and uh, it's it, it, to be fun, and, and to raise a family, and all sorts of you know reasons that normal people take take jobs. It, it is kind of challenging, and you know I think that when people want to stay in one place, like I think I'm respecting that more and more because I just see you know, smart people go into to new jobs that are competent, and then just getting run down by by whatever is going on at that club that has nothing to do with their jobs really. <laughs> was it was it a thing in American sports? Was it the Browns or something? They just like canned their entire analytics department really quite quite recently yeah. or something. Yeah, and you, yeah, they made a big deal about how they were kind of going to go through the process, and mm. in fact, they've got like tons of good draft picks coming up, and they've drafted some some pretty raw young talent, but certainly the baseline to be able to come out of that. And the Browns have been horrific for a long time, making absolutely terrible decisions. So you're like, all right, we've got smart people on board. We're going to go through probably two years of pain, and then we're really going to come out the other side. But yeah, they they got through you know a year and a half of this, I think, and they just shit can the the whole department and. 
and there you go. <laughs> yeah, how to do half a job and <laughs> for all round ready, but there we go. <laughs> no, not there. Which not players there. aren't being talked about who stand out analytically in the big five leagues? Now, James and I have to be really careful here because we've just come off a three-month project doing something exactly like this for people that we can't talk about because we don't talk about our customers. But we have quite a bit of expertise, and there are a couple of guys that we kind of can talk about that are pretty interesting. Well, yeah, two players I've spotted like recently that he hasn't had that many minutes, but he's still like quite impressive. Some guy called Adnan Yanazai. <laughs> never heard of him. No, I never heard of him. He's, he, one for the future, Ted. Could be good. I don't know. But he seems to have landed in Sociedad and um, actually looks like he's playing well. I can't say I've watched him particularly. He looks well. amazing. And uh, David Cardledge, who, if you guys don't don't follow him, I think he's David Haka on, on Twitter. A really bright guy who talks about uh, La Liga and, and Segunda to some extent. Uh, he has said consistently that Yanazai has been incredibly impressive when he's played. And it, it's so amazing because when he first started, you looked at him and you're like, he has everything that you would want. And he's so young and he, he's at United and and it's like so many reasons to get excited. But it's such a classic case of like, we just don't know when talent will develop and, and how it develops. It's, it's a really inconsistent process. It's not linear. So this guy has... You know, a couple of years of issues and then restarts at Sociedad and, and now he looks like every bit as good as he would have been all along. It, we just had those three dead years in the middle. He was on loan at Dortmund. I don't remember that. Bloody hell. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> apparently, I guess, I guess, yeah. And then, uh, and then Sunderland. But yeah, no. no. Men, mentality, willing to learn. I, I don't know. Like, these are, these are tough things. Like, sometimes, like, football's not that easy to get along with. It's super competitive and, Sometimes if you're not feeling it, you're not going to produce your best stuff. And yeah. if you're if you're eighty percent fitness all the time, some talent isn't that big a deal in that factor because everybody else is a hundred. And if you're struggling to keep up with the game, then forget it. I think more and more we'll see we'll see. I mean, maybe Janis Isa, he's twenty two, so he could easily be developing into the player that he promised like right now. But um, I think more and more we have seen, and we all see like players that, that have spent time at top clubs bouncing around getting sporadic minutes here the odd loan whatever it is ne- you know, never quite putting down roots until they finally do uh, you know and then they, they can actually show what they can do um, the, the, we never know the full story yeah. of footballers or things that happen inside of clubs and we try and tease it out and sometimes we try to speak you know really factually about stuff we've got vague information on sometimes we try and impart some insight on things we have a little more or you're inferring what's going on but you know, for for the, I never I try not to blame players if they don't play because it doesn't really give you an indication of whether they're talented or not. And Jose Mourinho has been the best individual at teaching this lesson because you look at the guys that that Chelsea cast off while he was there, and then you look at the future transfer fees and how how well those guys have performed. And you're like, yeah, um, it has nothing to do with whether or not they were good enough. It has everything to do with whether or not their manager felt like playing them. Yeah. So, like, someone asked about Salah. Like, what's the difference between Salah at Chelsea and Salah at Liverpool? Yeah. Getting on the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> as really. much as anything. And in some age. Like, he, he did sure. develop in, in Italy, and he got to play a lot at Fiorentina and a lot at Roma. Um, good technical, tactical leagues. Not necessarily as high paced as, as the Premier League, but you know there are quality teams there, and and he probably got some pretty good learning. And every bit of that has come back to, to England. And the talent was kind of always there. He might not have been as fully developed, but he was certainly 
basically the same player, just a couple years older and, uh, and a couple years wiser. Yeah, I think he landed. He landed at Chelsea literally when um, I think I, I did write about it. I, I can't recall 100, percent but I think he was. You know, Hazard was basically the the attacking kind of wide man, and then on the other side he tended to play maybe Ramirez or Oscar or something. You know, it, it just. Salah just there wasn't a space for him in that squad. I don't think, or that in that team at that time. So it was it was, right. it was no great surprise that he didn't get a ton of minutes. And you know, sporadic appearances, you no, know, didn't do a lot. And that's you know that's entirely normal. And I think he had Quadrado as well at that 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 time. So yeah, just you know, weird kind of like wrong, wrong place, wrong time kind of signing. And you know, he's proven proven that he's been very good since. Valencia have two really good attackers as well. One of them people will be at least somewhat familiar with, and the other one they might not know at all. But um, Jaja has been really good, and and <laughs> with a with a good coach that has taught him about shooting locations, Simone Jaja looks like a very good striker that people people always thought he was. Yeah, that's uh, that's surprising. <laughs> but there we go. You know, again, it shows where you can fit. But yeah, um, the PSG loan, Gonzalo. Guedes, I think that's how you say it. Yeah, uh, has had a great season. Um, I don't think he's under anyone's under any radar particularly. He's 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 looks like he's breaking out, and again, it shows how much talent PSG have got. When we're talking about like you know the, keeping Draxler, or maybe maybe not, you know Neymar, Di Maria, and you know they've got they've got a kid who's ripping up the Spanish league on their books. Um, Arsenal link with him mm. <laughs> in the papers. Maybe that could be something that happens, but yeah, he looks like he's he's a real talent. Um, again, on the numbers, it it comes through quite clearly that he's uh, exceptional. He's only twenty as well, and he's already. Well, PSG might have the best recruiting uh, district in the world. Like, they're basically the only big club in Paris. They also you know fund their academy quite well, and they're producing. You know, probably Champions League caliber players every year. Like one a year is is on average what they're doing. Very impressive. Like possibly even better than what City and Chelsea are doing. But none of the those players typically make it back in. Um, maybe maybe it is a little more. But you know, never you can't sleep on on PSG's academy. They do really really good players, and it's no huge surprise that they filter out occasionally into Europe. And you're like, wow, never heard of that kid. Where's he from? Oh, he's from PSG. Oh, he's from Red Bull. Like that, that, that seems to be pretty, pretty regular. Yeah. We've got one more thing we want to cover before we uh, we wrap this up. Go on um, our friend Devin Pluler, who has been around the analytics community for a very long time, in fact, earlier than I was, um, back at Central Winger and doing work for MLS. Congratulations to he and all of their staff at Toronto FC. Yeah. Who have had a in a historic year. They they basically set the points record for. MLS or wins record. I don't know how they track it over in America, <laughs> despite being American. Um, so yeah, they they've had a historic year. They won the Supporters Shield, which is basically what we would call winning the league, and then they also won the playoffs um, against Seattle, and and played actual football as opposed to Seattle's anti-football, which they've resorted to the last two years in the in the final. Like I think last year they didn't even have they might have had two shots and no shots on target. So that was a uh, it was pretty exciting to see. And someone asked, you know. Can we talk at all about Toronto and what they've done? Uh, so here's your chance to explore your MLS expertise. <laughs> Me? <laughs> yeah, I know loads about it. I think what what I can what I can add is a very sim- simple comment is that um, you know with salary caps and that kind of thing, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be a level playing field, and I think Toronto spent a few quid. 
um, and they have got good players. But biggest yeah, budget in the in the league, right? But they they they've spent it quite clearly, spent it effectively, and it's working. So, you know, the fact that they had had a good year last year, and they've had another backed it up with another good year, and Seattle as well, which we, and both teams we know are analytically minded as well. So it's you know good good to see these teams. Uh, you know, coming out the right end of things because it doesn't always work out that way. So, yeah. It's true. And you can have big budgets and not win. And we've seen plenty of clubs like that. Um, and, and especially the fact that, like, you know, it was the same two teams in the finals both years. I lend, lends itself to one, you know, budget is a big deal. But two, you know, these two teams are pretty good. Oh, did you know that Toronto finished on 69 points? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> no, come on, James. The, the correct response there is. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your memeing? Yeah, I'm, t- uh, I'm plus, too old. Plus 37 goal difference. <laughs> Atlanta had plus 30. Atlanta also another you know team that is definitely incorporated analytics into their into their work. One thing that I'll, I'll say about Toronto is it's really impressive that they managed to get that number of points despite the fact that it felt early on through through the season that they were clearly resting some of their stars and making sure that they kept them fresh for the playoffs because the playoffs is a is a big deal. Um, yeah, winning the the MLS Cup is bigger than the Supporter Shield, although I'm not necessarily sure that that it should be or that anybody else feels that way. So th- not only have they they managed to find probably a good style of play and they're they've got elite talent, but they're certainly utilizing it in ways that that makes it you know makes it easier for them to to win the final goal. So congratulations again to to Devin, and I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast for the last year. Uh, we do it occasionally. And you guys have been great in pushing us to do it more often. Um, hopefully, we don't always understand why you like listening to us, but I just want to thank you for doing so. And have a happy holidays, regardless of what race, religion, or creed you happen to be. Yes, see you in the new year. Okay, so special bonus content. <laughs> we had one more question that Ted wanted to do, uh, and it was, someone asked, uh, I see more stories of teams defying expected goals, Burnley, Man United, etc., than I do about expected goals being right. So is it any good, or is the natural bias in reporting the exception not the rule? What do you think, James? I, I think- there's like this huge lineage that we could go through where... where we're not really going to talk about all of the past stuff because we expect our re- our readers and our listeners to have followed along for a while now. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is. It does do it does do an effective job of uh, like analysing like the quality of teams. But you get your interesting cases are the ones that are your your outliers. You're kind of uh, the teams that appear to be uh, exterior to what expectation might suggest. So that's probably why you know those teams are. Uh, you driving those kind of stories and it's always been the case it's always been something that you know us in the stats and analytics world have, have focused upon so we're often know. looking for for reasons to say yes this seems correct or yes this is this seems weird and is it going to regress and regression mean is a big theme in what we do like are people hot are they not like is it is there some sort of luck factor is this likely to to come back to to earth um, you know, professionally, we definitely look at this um, both for being able to to look at you know, potential team finishes, to be able to look at players, 
uh, we always use this. So why do we use XG? Well, because it's better than shots, and it's better than shots on target. And for much of the season, it's better than goals in predicting future performance and analyzing sort of the truth of team performance. Now, that doesn't mean that it gets everybody right. And there are problems, there are weaknesses inside of the data itself that I think are are things that we can try to correct for, but it's hard to do it across the wide scale because tracking data isn't available to everybody. And even if we do get tracking data, there's some skepticism that people are going to know what the hell to do with, how to process it, um, how to visualize it, whatever. Uh, but we use expected goals because it's the best thing uh, that we know of to be able to easily assess team player performance uh, on a regular basis. The, the complication is it's a model. It doesn't reflect reality. And there are plenty of times when teams are not currently reflecting reality. And that's where the really interesting arguments come. Like we're arguing, everybody's arguing about Sean Dyche and Burnley because they don't reflect reality at all. And and you're like, well, I mean, the reality is they've been very, very good. But last year, they looked very similar to this in terms of the numbers, and they finished nearly in relegation places. So the question then becomes, is there something happening that makes them able to beat the expected goals models in the long term? Or do we expect them to come down from these lofty heights of the Champions League and finish mid-table? Yeah, I mean, I could tell you a story about Leicester. In relation to expected goals, but it or wouldn't be very. It wouldn't be, no, Leicester this season, but it oh, wouldn't be very. It wouldn't be very interesting because right now they just they've caught up. And well, Crystal is, Palace is, 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 yeah. is a huge classic one, right? Like we we looked at Palace and they've never looked bad from the expected goals numbers all year long. Like all year long, they've even when they're scoring zero goals, and you're like, well, they've scored zero goals so far. Do we expect them to score zero goals for the rest of the season? The answer is obviously not. Like that doesn't happen. And in fact, they they set a record for not scoring goals in in this season that it had never been you know never been set before that time. So we're trying to look you know beyond what is in the league table, beyond small sample size, and then extract information for how it's going to go in the future. And that's why we use expected goals, because it is the best thing that we have in order to be able to do this. Will people develop better things in the future to be able to do this? Yes. Will they be huge improvements over expected goals? Well, it depends on what you think of as huge. Um, you know, a 10% improvement in expected goals is going to make you very rich in the, the gambling markets, if the gambling markets are based off of expected goals numbers. And they're not entirely that way. And in fact, I think there are plenty of people uh, I've met over the years that would say, if you just did expected goals, you would end up very, very poor because the spots that expected goals are wrong, you will dump a lot of money into. But in all the spots that expected goals are right, you'll win a small bit of money. And that's the danger of it. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way we look at it. There's plenty have been written. There's plenty more in other podcasts giving you the full breakdown of what is expected goals and why do you care. But this is why we still use it. There are plenty of teams out there, especially early in the season, that are going to break it. And the big fun question for everybody is to find out, is this a long-term trend? Do they have some sort of special sauce? Sean Dyche might. <laughs> might also be a warlock. Or is it is it something we expect them to regress towards the mean and they're not going to stay in that spot all year long? And that's... That's the fun of it. That's why we keep doing it. Yeah. And some of us are more fundamentalist than others. It's absolutely true. <laughs> Looks I, in mirror. <laughs> none, none of the analysts necessarily have the exact same perspective on this, too. And that's that's fun, yeah. too. Like James and I will, will will politely disagree on this. And that's what you guys want from us. You know, just, just want agreement. Um, 
you know, Sean Dyche is doing some special stuff. Maybe, maybe next year someone will come along with some information or some new data that'll, that'll help unveil that and we'll all be much brighter because of it. But until then, expected goals. That's what you got. Right. That's it. Farewell. <laughs>